You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Well, it's been a wonderful series going through Hebrews together, and we're uh, continuing in chapter 9 and making great progress, and we have uh, quite a bit left, actually, so we're starting to slow down towards the end of this letter uh, to this first century church, and um, writing to this church that is afraid and their, their, their lives are, are kind of being shaken, their faith is being shaken, and encouragement to stand firm in the faith is being um, encouraged and proclaimed to them. And we continue in chapter 9, starting in verse 11. Let's follow along with God's word. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. Last week, we really took a deep dive into the details of early worship of God's people in the Old Testament. Tabernacle worship, temple worship, and now we take an even deeper dive into the sacrificial system of the the shedding of blood. I remember going to a worship service uh, with someone a handful of years ago. It's about 10 years ago, and the music was very strange uh, to my friend, and he brought it up after the service over lunch. And I hadn't noticed anything. It was a a wonderful worship service. It was, um, uh, nothing seemed out of place. And he said, what was going on with all the music? And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, there's a lot of blood mentioned in, in the singing. I mean, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the cross, the, the blood that covers us. Uh, we even sang, I think, about rivers of blood. It's, it's peculiar. It, it is, it's strange. And this maybe happened 10 years ago. And I, I think about this conversation often. And... And not that he was just observant of that we talk about blood a lot in church. But then what he said next really stood out, and I think why I remember this so much. He said, I don't know if I feel comfortable bringing someone who's not a Christian here. 
I think they would just be so kind of like bizarrely turned off by it. Two things really stuck out to me in that. One, he's right. I don't think we notice how much we talk about blood and how blood is such a central part of what it means to be a Christian. Have you ever noticed that? We talk about it. We sing about it. It's a, it's a bit peculiar if you really think about it. From our perspective, it doesn't seem that odd. It's, it's uh, something that seems normal, but we're, we're talk, we talk about being washed in the blood of Christ. Um, fountains filled with blood pouring over. Uh, we, we talk about the symbol of our faith being a, a torture apparatus. And so... A little bit peculiar when you really think of it from the outside, kind of looking in. But the second thing was, do we really need to have blood so much a part of the central part of what it means to be a Christian today? If this is weird for non-Christians, should we minimize the weirdness and just talk about things that are a little bit more accessible? Or are we too obsessed as Christians with blood? Well, our passage really addresses these two problems, these two things, these two questions. And in fact, our passage has no problem talking about blood at all. Just in this passage, blood is, and, and death is mentioned over 15 times in this short passage. If we have a problem with blood, then we have a problem with Christianity. We have a problem with what it means to be a Christian. And if we take out that, then we lose every significance, everything that it means to know Christ, to be forgiven of our sins, to be a Christian. We have none of it. And so to drive home this singular point, without blood... Our passage says, without blood, there is no forgiveness. Without blood, there is no inheritance. There is no salvation. There is no relationship with God. There is none of it. Anything that we hope to gain from God of any of his blessings and the life that he has for us without blood, none of it happens. And so are we right to make blood such a focus of our faith? Absolutely. And the Bible makes no question about it. It's everywhere. And if you open, it kind of rolls off the tongue as if you were raised in the church. It seems like nothing odd at all. But if you come to it from the outside and you start thinking about it, it's like, it's like a book about blood. And it is. Why do we need blood? And that's really the focus of today. Why blood? It's because we are faced with the great problems in our life that this passage takes direct aim at. We have problems that we can't fix, and the blood of Christ addresses these problems we look at three problems that are addressed in our passage. We first look at the moral problem, and then the inheritance problem, and then the substitute problem. Why don't we look at the, the moral problem first? Our passage uh, first presents this moral problem. There is an old system to address man's sins and how they fell short of God's commands. That was through the sacrificial system in the temple. And we are told, though, that this old system was, had faults within it. It was faulty, it was insufficient, it was lacking, and Christ came to perfect what the old could not accomplish. Verse 11 introduces this in 9-11, looking back at that, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of creation, he entered once and for all to the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood." And then in verse 14, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
You see, when you sinned against God in the Old Covenant, when God's Old Testament people sinned against God, a blood sacrifice was made. God made provision for the forgiveness of their sins once a year for their sins. And this was meant to forgive them sin, their sins, to reconcile them to God, but there was something it could never do. It could never change them. It could, only, it could never reach that deep into their inner being. It could never change their heart. It was meant to remove a barrier of impurity between a sinful people and a holy God, but it would, could never reach the heart. It could only do externally for the people what needed to be done so that God could continue to have relationship with them. But it was insufficient to do more than that. That's what it means to have our conscience pure, is to have our inner being to be changed in a moral sense. Your conscience is that, that, that moral compass, that moral design by God to teach us right and wrong and to know his law, to know truth, to abide in his truth and to obey his commands. And there was nothing that could be done for God's Old Testament people that could change that broken part of their life. To stand before God, not just externally forgiven for your sins, but internally changed. That's something that the sacrifice could never do. And so there's this big moral problem for the people of God that must be addressed. It, wasn't able, it was able to forgive their sins, but it could never take away a guilty conscience. It could never take away a guilty conscience. God made provisions for their sins, but the condition of their soul remained unchanged before God. And this is the moral problem that continues. It even continues today. Sin's not minimized into isolated actions or bad things that we do. We are told that sin is also a condition of our heart, a condition of our soul before God that is dead, sinfully dead. It's in a condition of depravity. Have you ever wondered why God just couldn't just say you're forgiven and then all your sins are forgiven? Why go through this complicated system? Why go through all these rituals and all this, this mess of sacrifice? I mean, God did say at one point, let there be light, and there was light. Why can't he just say your sins are forgiven and then your sins be forgiven? Have you ever wondered that? He gives commands all the time. God does what he wants. Why can't he just declare that our sins are forgiven? Why blood? Why send his son to die? Why shed blood? Why die at all? Because what we learn is that our sins are far worse than we ever thought they were. We're incapable of doing anything about it, and there's only one penalty for sin, and that's death. And so there's this moral dilemma. There's this moral dilemma when our passage says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He says, somebody has to die. Somebody's blood has to be given. And God promised it in the Garden of Eden. He said, obey this command, this one command I give to you, for your well-being, for your, because I love you, obey this command. Do not eat of this fruit of the forbidden tree, or you will die. They ate of it. Their hearts were cursed. They rebelled against God. They didn't die at that moment, but they would eventually die. And nothing could change that. Nothing can change that guilty conscience, that sin that corroded everything. God... 
said this is the consequence, and he can't just use a magic word to forgive because God is pure and holy and righteous. He's a righteous judge that must judge sin, and he says this is the consequence for sin. It has to be death. Two realities that we have to maintain when we look at the Bible and we think of this topic of salvation and forgiveness of sins Here's the first thing we need to keep big. We need to keep our view of sin as big as the Bible keeps it. And we have to keep our view of God's holiness as big as the Bible keeps it. And when we see those two together, we really do have a moral problem. When we minimize sin, we say, oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And when we minimize God, we say, oh, he can let this one slide. He's kind and loving and forgiving. But sin is not simply just doing things that we should not do. It's a distortion of God's character. It's a twisting of his good purposes in the world. Sin is squaring up before God, a holy God of the universe who is pure and perfect and true and righteous. And it's standing squarely before him and calling him cruel and unwise that we know better. Have you ever wondered how you might minimize sin in your own life? And we minimize sin all the time. I include myself in this. It's so easy to do it, to justify, to to minimize sin and not see it as the Bible sees it. Here are some ways, and actually these I just jotted down things that I've heard this year. Some of them I've said. Here's here's a couple. I was really uncomfortable. Given the circumstances, I'm, I'm not sure I had any other choice. Or those were different times and people's views were different and I was young and foolish. Or God loves me and he knows that this is a struggle for me, but ultimately I believe he forgives me and wants me to be happy. I've done things I'm not proud of, but I'm not as bad as I could be. I just needed to blow off some some steam. I've worked really hard and I deserve this. I'm trying to be better. I, I know it's not the best, but... And then fill in the blank. I tried it God's way and things don't get better. And, and yes, I've also heard this one. Yeah, but what does that word really mean in the Greek? <laughs> we will minimize and justify and find every way possible to just to do our own thing, to not listen to God's commands. They're, these are all examples of minimizing sin and not looking at our sin the way the Bible does. You feel like God's being a little dramatic here? You feel like he's being a little strict When it comes to sin, I mean, come on, shouldn't he just relax a little bit? Why all the blood? Do you feel that God would be treating you unfairly if you found yourself in hell one day because even though you've made mistakes in your life, you just don't think you're the kind of person who deserves to be there? If so, you may not understand the moral problem that the Bible presents. When we do understand the moral problem, we say, left to my own record, I deserve nothing but God's judgment. And if God condemns me for eternity, I would not have a single thing to complain about. I would have no complaint to bring to him. No offense. Wouldn't it be cruel if I ended the sermon right here? Yeah. (laughs) But this is the moral problem that is presented in Scripture. And the secret to forgiveness 
is the monumental solution of the shedding of the blood of God's own Son. To enter into that moral problem that we have. The sprinkling of blood. If you participate in these rituals, imagine this. You know, we've read it for a couple weeks now and kind of looked at these, these Old Testament, Old Covenant system of sacrifice. You would see a gigantic mess. I mean, they would take this sponge and these leaves and they would take kind of this, this fashioned uh, um, brush-looking thing of hyssop plants and leaves and they would dip it into the animal blood and then just sprinkle it everywhere over, over himself, over the, some people to represent the sins of the people, over the walls, over the tables. I mean, if, there, there'd be blood just everywhere. There's blood on the floor, there's blood on the walls, there's blood on the people, there's blood flowing through the the streets. They even had to build special canals because at the time of sacrifice, once a year, in the city, there was so much animal sacrifice that the blood would fill the streets and they had to build these gutters to take all the blood out of the city. It was so a part of them, they, they could not ignore it. Blood was everywhere. And they did all that because God told them to do it that way. It was this way because they understood the moral problem between a sinful person and a holy God. Why blood? Because we are incapable of offering anything of ourselves that can forgive our sins and bring new life to the inner condition of spiritual death and alienation from God. And that monumental blessing, that monumental good news, that astonishing grace that God would enter into that problem, offering a solution, not in a sacrifice beyond himself, but his own blood to sacrifice for the sins of his people. Jesus solves that problem with his blood. That's why we sing of it. That's why we talk about it. That's why we don't skirt the issue. That's why we don't neglect it just because it's, you know, if it were weird and messy and just uncomfortable to talk about or seeming cruel. It's a wonderful, the most wonderful provision of love that the world has ever known. So that's the first problem addressed here is the moral problem. And if we want to understand why blood, we need to understand that moral problem. But the second problem is this. There's an inheritance problem. And our passage addresses this as well using the metaphor of the will. You may have a will, and guess what? Your will doesn't pay out until you kick it, <laughs> until you die. Your will, the, the, the promises of that will and the stipulations of that will do not take effect unless there's death. And the writer of Hebrews says this is the exact way it is with the inheritance of God for his people. In verse 15 to 17, he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And verse 15 to 17 really tells us how this works and what the inheritance is. There is a promised eternal inheritance that awaits those who are called. There are God's chosen and called people named in his will as beneficiaries of all the promises and blessings and resources of 
all the reward that belongs to Jesus, his son, as his faithful and perfect son. What's promised in that? We could spend several minutes just brainstorming all the things. Here it just says the eternal promised inheritance to encapsulate everything that God has promised to us. There's adoption into his family. There's the forgiveness of sins. There's reconciliation between us being enemies and now his friends. There's the declaration of innocence and the imputed righteousness of Christ to us so that we stand before God as innocent even though we have sinned. There's eternal life, of course. There's hope. In this life, there's hope for the future. We know that that God preserves for us uh, the inheritance that he has promised. There's, it's more than just heaven, right? What's the, what are these eternal promised inheritance? It's more than just heaven. It's all of that. It's all the blessings that come with Christ that he brings. When we think about the inheritance, the eternal promised inheritance, we think of all the things that God will give us. But the real reward is Christ himself. He's our treasure. He is our reward. He is our inheritance. We're told this throughout the Bible, reminded in our previous chapter, that he, the great thing about the, the new covenant promise is that he will be our God and we will be his people. That there will be this intimate relationship, that there will be this um, communion with God. So transformational, more transformational than any relationship we've ever known. And simply put, the death of Christ is the pathway to all that we hope to gain from God, especially God himself. There is this huge eternal inheritance waiting for us, released because Jesus died for us. What do you hope to get from God? What do you hope in your relationship with God? These are all promises and blessings and good things from God, and they are not dispensed to us unless the writer of that will dies, and that is Jesus Christ. Why blood? Because without it, the life, this life is as good as it gets right now. Without blood, there's, there's nothing better to wait for. There's nothing more coming from God. There's nothing to hope in. There's nothing to rest our future in. There's no one to pursue. There's no reason to do good There's nothing, nothing is coming and no one is coming for us if there is not blood. But because there is, everything that God has promised is dispensed to us in its right time. Have you thought of that? The inheritance, without blood, there is no inheritance. That's our second problem. Let's look at the third problem that the blood of Christ addresses and that's the substitute problem. There's the question, who can take our place? Who can take our sins? Um, so we know, like, okay, God can't say your sins are forgiven, but can God, can we sacrifice somebody else? <laughs> like, can our friend take our place? Can a family member take our place? Can, uh, can I substitute a life of good deeds to replace the bad things that I have done? Uh, what can take my place? There's a problem here of somebody has to die. The question is, who, who has to die? Who can take my place? And verse 19 to 20 says this, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, 
with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So Moses delivers the law of God to the people and says, here's what God commands of you and you have failed and so a sacrifice, somebody has to die. So they take the life of an innocent animal as God provided to die for the sins of the people to forgive them. Not all the people, some of the people are represented as the, for the whole people. They're sprinkled with blood and for himself. And then Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded to you. It sounds, a lot, sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you've been here at Holy Cross for a little while, this should sound familiar. Why? Because I say something very close to that every single Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper but with a small but very significant modification. And it's a modification that actually Jesus uses. Jesus quotes this passage of Moses later on before he dies. The last time he drinks wine and has bread and a meal with his disciples, he says something very close to this. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why is he saying it like this? Jesus, you're not supposed to change the Bible. <laughs> what is he saying? He says the law of God, the commands of God were given to the people and, and Moses said this is the blood of the covenant. And it could not fix the moral problem. It could not change the heart. It could not give the inheritance of God's blessing to his people. And so Jesus came and said, this is my blood of the covenant, of all of God's promises that is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Apart from this, none of these things will come to you. Once and for all, I'm paying the debt for your sin. I'm removing your guilt. I'm nailing it to the cross. Not only, he's saying, not only did I come to forgive you, but I came to substitute myself for you. When Moses was saying, this is the, the blood of the covenant, he's taking the blood of the innocent animal and saying, this blood is going to forgive your sins. And now Jesus is saying, my blood is going to forgive your sins once and for all. In your place. Because someone has to die. As we've already read, there will be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. God would never be satisfied if we stood before him and said, my bad God, I've done some horrible things in my life. I'm really not proud of. I'm so very sorry. But it's a good thing that you're a loving and forgiving God. He would say, I'm sorry, somebody has to die. Someone has to die. And so it comes down to this, and this is the simple formula it comes down to for each and every one of us. It's either you dying for your sins or Jesus. Why Jesus? Because there is no other suitable sacrifice that could satisfy the judgment that is on everyone who has sinned. Someone has to pay for my sins. It's the only way to satisfy a righteous God who judges righteously a holy God. And through the incarnation of Christ, God looked at the world, had pity and compassion on his people, and he placed himself in our suffering. God demanded punishment, and in order to spare us, he received in our place on the cross the rejection and condemnation that we deserve. Somebody has to die. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. 
God looks upon our sin and our guilt and he, instead of turning a deaf ear and a blind eye to our suffering, he sends Jesus because somebody had to die. Why blood? Because we need a substitute. And it's us on the cross crying out to God and hearing nothing or it is Jesus on the cross crying out for his father and hearing nothing. And that is the monumental love with which God loves us. To send his son to take our place on that cross, the punishment for our sin that we deserve. There's a, there's a common reaction to the harshness that the Bible describes over sin. And it's this, we are often shocked that God would be so judgmental of sin. And we're not shocked at all that he saves us. But the opposite reaction is actually probably more, should be more accurate and more true. We're, we should be not surprised when a holy and righteous God holds people accountable to their sin and judges people. And we should be very shocked when he shows mercy. But the opposite is often true. The gospel, the good news of the Bible is not something that we do for ourselves to be forgiven. It's what has been done for us in our place. And the only one who could do it for us is Jesus. He's the only one who had an acceptable sacrifice. He's a human sacrifice, not any human sacrifice, but a perfect human sacrifice. And not just a perfectly human sacrifice, but the one who was not defiled by sin because he was perfectly God and perfectly divine. We needed a sacrifice who was fully God, fully man, who would come into our lives to live under the law and do what we were commanded to do but failed to do. And there's only one who was ever capable of doing that, and it was Jesus. He's the only suitable substitute. Only Jesus could enter the holy of holies. Only he could enter into heaven. Only he could have access because he was without sin. And only Jesus was capable of making a sacrifice that, that would satisfy God. What could wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's how Jesus makes it right. That's how he makes it right. That's how he solves the problem, the moral problem, the substitute problem, the inheritance problem. That's how he makes it right. So how do we make it right? How do we make it right? Only through faith. This is how we participate and make it right by faith. This is what God has told us, that we are saved by faith, not by our record, not by our character, not by a, even merely an intellectual assent to the truths of Scripture, but through faith in Jesus who died for our sins that we could be assured that there's a hope that awaits us, that there's a forgiveness that he has given to us. And what awaits us is not condemnation with God, but his full affection and love. What does this faith look like? It is this belief that, that our sin is as bad as the Bible says it is. We have wronged God. We, have, we look at the law of God and we cannot stand before God with confidence that we have obeyed it correctly. And then we have to be honest about his nature as a holy God who is just and must punish sin. And we have to be honest about our inability within ourselves to do anything about it. And then that's where we cry out for God, looking at Jesus on the cross and see his love poured out for us in Jesus Christ. Why blood? Because we need it. We need him. 
Saving faith is transferring our trust away from ourselves and resting in him. It means saying this, God, accept me not because of what I have done or what I will ever do, but because of what Jesus has done for me in my place. And so we need to take a close look at our lives. We need to take a close look at our sin. We need to take a close look at God's word and what he says about us. But don't stop there. Then we need to take a close look at Jesus. We need to take a close look at him crucified for us. He calls you to repentance. He calls you to faith. He calls you to trust. He calls you not to simply emotional certainty or intellectual belief. He calls you to act upon, in an act of your will, to rest in him and say, you are my hope. You are my substitute. Why blood? Because someone needs to die for sin, and I'm so glad you gave yourself for me. You can give yourself completely to him because he has given himself completely to you. Trust in him.